0: Hey there, hi there, ho there! Here we all are. Welcome to episode number five uh, of the Cut Banks conversation. So uh, we got lots to cover today. We got uh, wild sheep stuff we're going to talk about and uh, yak about in in length with Kyle in just a few minutes here. Uh, we got a little housekeeping and let's uh, take a kind of run around and a little update. So COVID, where are we at uh, province wide? How's it looking? Good, bad, ugly? <laughs> it, it's still ugly because we got these restrictions on us. However, <laughs> it,
1: it is getting better uh i believe we're down to single cases per day coming in now so we're doing pretty good and uh what were the numbers on the north matt
2: uh i think we've been six days now without a new case bringing our total to 66 right now uh i believe that none of those are active we have no active cases in northern health island health or interior health
0: wow so, uh, kudos. Quick round of applause for Bunny Henry and her team. Yay. Yeah, we're happy that all that stuff is uh, working out. Not so happy about the implications for hunting. Steve and I haven't had a chance to hunt together. <laughs> uh, I did a lot of solo hunting. Uh, but, but it's been a fun bear season, so spring bear is uh, has been good coming to a close. Uh, I noticed a big shift in behavior. I started to see some boars and sows the last time I was out on the weekend. Uh, but the other thing is green up has gone like crazy.
1: Oh, it took right off.
0: Yeah, and uh, some of that road travel is starting to wind itself down, so you're going to have to work a little harder up here to to see them and to find them as they kind of get into the middle of rut. So, Uh, all right, let's just jump into this thing. Um, (laughs) Here we go. Here we go. Um, So a few few days ago, just prior to the weekend, uh, there was – there was some political commentary that was pushed around by one of the political parties. Um, and what it was, was uh, it was drawing attention to the fact that there was an increase specifically in Region 4 uh, in some moose LEH authorizations, and those LEH authorizations were, were specifically around cows and calves. Now, provincially, um, you know, there, there's been, over the last uh, decade or so, there's been a significant decline in, in the moose population, so we get that part. But still provincially, we've got 147,000 moose as a province. Mm -hmm. And in this specific area, Steve, the specific part of the Kootenays where these increases were in, we've looked at a population that's almost doubled since 2007, 2008. Correct, yeah. So, I mean, uh, ostensibly you're talking about less than 50 or right around 50 spread over, I think, three or four MUs, something like that? Yeah, I I believe the increase is 47 tags. So, So 47 tags, and we generally look at a... Uh, if you look at the trends, I, I think there, and I think everybody that's listening has seen the little graph that shows 2015, 16, 17, <laughs> and it, you're running at about a 25 to 27 percent success rate. So you're, you're going to, you're talking somewhere around 15 animals between 11 and 15 animals, depending on the day Right. Yeah, on the
1: very high end. Yeah.
0: Yeah. If, if you harvest that, but what that created was a significant backlash. And this is kind of what I want to talk about. I wrote a, an op-ed piece that talked a little bit about it because I'm, I'm part of that That group of people that reacted to it, Um, and and my 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 good friend Steve decided that maybe Don needs to just take take a pause and just this is what we're talking about Um, now. So Steve kind of he he helped me frame some perspective around it, which was very very valuable in this case. Um, And the other thing about it that uh, I think muddied the waters um where these uh, leh authorizations are taking place or or proposed to to be taking place just happens to be in an area where there's a caribou recovery area right so what that reeks of is primary prey reduction something that we've talked about on this podcast and something that i i don't know that i've i've wholly sound i i'm not totally signed in but we have covered the ground a little bit um, and I think we all agreed in, the, in that podcast that it works uh, It re- works really well when it's uh, paired with wolf mitigation. And that's one of the things that's been going on in that particular area. Not initially, but it has been going on. So um, for the moose, the moose have started to, to recover. Um, you've got a small increase that's really done for herd dynamics. The re- reasoning behind it has got nothing to do with anything other than... You've got a, an excessive amount of calf recruitment over the last couple of years. That's correct. Yeah. Right. So that really swings the numbers up. So this is really about getting numbers right. And in any and in any single LPU or local population unit in any wildlife species you choose to to to, 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 to put your your lens on in the province, if there's any one of those that was had an increase you would want them to manage it accordingly. If, if, if we took out moose and said it was white-tailed deer or took out moose and said it was, you know, mule deer, and there was an increase and that population doubled, and we thought that the herd dynamics were off, we would say, fix it, right? And yeah. we would say, do what you need to do, and if you have to increase some, and if that was, you know, does or sows or whatever it was, if those were the things that were required to get the balance right, we would be okay with that. But because it's moose... And, and there's, this, there's this belief, and I mean, I, I don't mean it's a belief, that's the, wrong, that's the wrong way to say it, but there's this understanding that we have a moose crisis, which we do, but we, 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 where we having it isn't necessarily in that specific area. So, you know, you've got a 70% decline in moose over the last decade. Yes, moose are in trouble, but moose in that specific area still need to be managed for that specific area. It's only got us, 575 animals? 575 is what the last count was, and they're trying to manage for 500. Right. And that's got to do with carrying capacity. Yes, it probably has something to do with primary, you know, prey reduction. It's certainly part of it. Um, but one of the interesting things that we tripped over, Steve and I, in this, is we took a look at uh, the parsnip, uh, the parsnip river uh, study that came out that, that looked at primary prey reduction without wolf mitigation for 2017 and 2018. And you actually had a positive increase in, the, in moose density in that area without wolf mitigation. Now you're going to add wolf mitigation, which they've recently started to add into that basin, and into that basin, that valley. Um, and now you're starting to see some probably compounding positive effects of it. So it can work in a certain area, uh, depending on, you know, what sort of vegetation, what sort of habitat you have. That area is recovered uh, fairly significantly in, in, in a lot of those pockets from some of the forestry activity. So you've got a lot of early seral vegetation, uh, which is good moose habitat. So they were making a good recovery because the habitat is recovered to a to a place where they have good forage. Now you add to that, which they've done, another layer of wolf mitigation. You've got a recovery. I guess my big point is, what I saw of there was there. There's two sides of this. I'm dealing with the scientific side, which was we want science to manage wildlife. We've been saying that for forever. We lost a grizzly bear hunt because they didn't do that. The government that is currently running the show, they did not do that. They made a purely social decision on a purely, on something that should be managed purely scientifically. And what I I guess my problem is, and remember, this is just my own. This show is an opinion show. (laughs) It's not just a fact show. It's an opinion show. Um, This is just where I sit on this thing. I mean, I think you got to look at if there's if there's science that can be conducted. And is everything perfect? No, we just we were just talking about COVID. That has been a less than perfect uh, undertaking. But you do the best with you have. uh, With with, you, 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 the best you can with what you have and what you know in the moment, right? Well, we've had lots of time to understand those moments, I think, where it comes to managing wildlife. And know th- are they always going to get it right? No, but I would rather them have them do something uh, and get a positive win than do nothing uh, so that we can all sit on our laurels and say that, you know, um, we've got a, you know, w- whether we know better sitting at home watching or uh, we know better and they're not doing their job right. I mean, I, I, part of me wonders, is it just, we, we, we'd rather they don't do anything so we can just <laughs> say, yeah, you're not doing your job right. Oh, I'd hate to be a wildlife manager right now. I'd hate to be a wildlife, right. And that's the, I guess that's the part I'm kind of stammering through this, but it's frustrating for me because I, you know, it's a tough job that they have. And I mean, and I'm no different. I'm the, I'm casting the stone. I'm one of those guys casting stones at them. You know, we're judging outcomes. Uh, And I'm not a, I'm not a trained biologist. I'm not a trained ecologist. I just know that when I stopped and started to do a little bit of digging, I started to realize, you know, we're we're not talking a lot about a, a lot of animals here. We're talking about a fairly balanced scientific yeah. equation in a very specific geography. Well, what's neat, I,
1: one of the coolest things that I heard about this thing is uh, I believe you saw the screenshot that I learned that I am an expert wildlife modeler on the computer. Yeah. And, <laughs> and I'm a biologist. And yeah. And I created this whole thing because I threw a little bit of science out there. Yeah. And one of the papers that I quoted actually shows a 55% increase in caribou in these areas we're talking about between 2017 and 2018.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So there And so there is a positive effect for caribou in a couple of these areas. Absolutely. It is, and
1: and yeah, as you said perfectly, we we scream for science when it. But the problem is, we only scream for it when it
0: suits us. Yeah, we scream, scream. I, we should be careful about that because I mean, we don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater. It's not everybody, but lots of people run to the sound of that gun, right? So you know, they they hear somebody say, "Hey, listen, they're they're doing this with moose and they're killing you know cows and calves." And the worst part was, and this the other the, the bigger objection for me was this political um, opinion um, and, and, and spin doctoring that was done was this, they're killing mothers and babies. And this was, and then it became a cull right. And it, it was the language of the draft that drove me nuts. I mean, that's the language, that's what you put in the water. And, you know, amongst the hunting community, that's one thing. Uh, but I sent a screenshot to, to everybody on the, on the podcast, not long after that happens, you know, uh, you know, one of my friends, you know, posts what's going on, and she posts a little the news bite, you know, coming from that political party, and says, "Hey, this is what happens." Now she's a she's she's a hunter. She didn't do anything wrong, but somebody that's not a hunter, that's a friend of hers, reads that and goes, "They're killing mothers and babies." You know, it just it's just like that's the whole problem with 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 not a little bit of self editing or mm. thinking of where do, where can where does this language take us. Like, I get what he's saying. He's, he's you know, he's he was trying to advocate for making good scientific decisions, and he disagreed with it, like many people, including myself, did in your knee-jerk reaction. But charging this with, you know, needlessly inflammatory and, and emotional language, just, and it was strictly to curry favor in a political environment. It was a, that was political, that was all political context, and it was designed to score political points. And, you know, for me personally, yes, we need politics on our side, but I don't want to be political when it comes to wildlife management because I just saw what uh, how that or, or how that plays out when somebody says let's make a political decision, which is a social decision about wildlife, and then you lose things like the grizzly bear hunt, and you start talking about killing mothers and babies, uh, and you convert that into the into the language of the uninitiated. All they hear is kill and mothers and babies, no context. There's no science in that. That's strictly to me a reason to start to say, Hey, what else are they doing in that hunting community, them them darn guys, right? And gals. Oh. Just wait till it gets out that they, they're killing puppies as a part of this. You know yeah. what I mean? It's it's all
1: in the language and you nailed it. I, I I can't help but think that the major part of this backlash was created because of those those sound bites. Yeah. Killing mothers and babies. And that's what got me right ticked off immediately. Yeah. It wasn't yeah. the fact that that there was some a handful of tags opened it was the language that was used and as as you said it's it was meant to, to garner favor but i don't think they they thought about the, the backlash from the hunting community as well as the aunties and all the ones that don't really understand
0: hunting yeah it's it's where, it's where it can lead us absolutely. right you got to think about where the final destination like when that when those when those little sound bites come home and they they kind of sit in the back of somebody's mind overnight and they they have a chance to kind of ferment you know you know and it's like what, what's going on right and and then they start asking more questions but they ask that the people that are looking from the outside in that those kinds of things aren't framed in context no definitely right not. there was zero scientific language put around that right no none not at all not at all, and Matt, you're not a hunter, so you you read the. You, I mean, I, I I mean, I I shovel all this stuff off to Matt to get reactions from him, <laughs> but and Matt Matt is the non-hunter on, on, on the program. Matt is also surfing around looking for that stuff now. So, what yeah. were your thoughts?
2: Well, I mean, you you saw the post. I had paragraphs and paragraphs to say. I don't know anything about hunting or <laughs> conservation, but I had paragraphs to say about that article. And you guys are bang on. I mean, uh, it, it needs context around it because we we do say we want things scientifically managed but you know it, when we have articles like that come out guys like me and and people who aren't hunters immediately start making emotional decisions
0: yeah mm-hmm. yeah 100% and and,
2: yeah.
1: and we know for a fact because uh, the minister said that grizzly hunting was not socially acceptable anymore and that that was the reason yeah it, it's not that there was too many or too uh, too little uh, it's not that they're endangered. It's not that they're threatened. It's that they, it's not socially acceptable anymore. So where does this lead us?
0: You know, for sure. They'll take the word mothers and babies and killing, you know, cows and calves and let that run around for a while. And, you know, a year from now, somebody comes in and says, hey, you know what? It's not socially acceptable anymore um, to, to to kill. Maybe it is just antler. And, and that might satisfy some people listening where, hey, there's no more antlerless harvest. So one of the interesting things I got from a friend of uh, Steve and mine, who's a biologist, is one of the things that he said is, he goes, he goes I, you got 147,000 moose in this province. And he said, and it's antlerless harvest that they're talking about that they have a problem with. And I think province-wide, how many? it's not very many antlerless tags. 400. Is the, is the total for the province, right? For 2020, 400. Yeah, so he said at 147,000, they're talking about that. But he said, how come nobody stands up and says antlerless deer season? Problem with it. Nope, don't have one with it. Um, antlerless cow elk season? Nobody seems to have a problem with it. Because if they, if, they, if they get tagged soup on the ones that have antlers, then they're more than happy to go out uh, and, and go get a cow if they can get it in one of those late season draws, particularly up here in our, in our area in, in region 7. So it's not, it's not just about, their objection isn't to antlerless harvest because a lot of these people still do it, right? Um, there's, a, there's a doe season for deer, there's a cow season for elk. But this one in particular, I don't know why this one gets so charged. I know a lot of it's tied to the fact that we see a significant decline in moose. But 147,000 moose is not no moose, right? It might not be as many moose as we used to have, but, it, it, but it, that doesn't mean that. That's not an extinct population. That's, there's, there's areas where that population is certainly, I don't even know if it's listed, listed as threatened in very many areas, but um, it, you, you, that's a lot of moose still. And we're talking about, in the end, we're talking about between ten and fifteen moose. Yeah, exactly. Look, look at the
1: uh, the article you sent me today. Was
0: it Sweden, Norway? Uh, yeah, you're ta- yeah, you're talking Sweden, Norway, the Scandinavian countries. Yeah, get into that. Like I was floored at the the harvest rates on that. So you take a look at um, between those three countries, you, they will harvest annually um, uh, the, the amount of moose that we have in British Columbia between those three countries, but their harvest is almost half is cows and calves. Yeah, it's almost 50-50. It's a 50-50 split. The, the primary difference, though, in their herd management strategy is there is way less focus on antler growth. So they're not concerned about that. What they're concerned about is protein value, right? So they have bulls and they have cows and they have some calves. And all they're concerned about is, is it an adult animal? But the, your, they deal with a population of about 300,000 moose annually. That's kind of where they manage to. And you look in, in each of those countries, it's between, I think Sweden was 80,000 moose harvested last year. Um, oh, pardon me, they were 80,000 on a population of 300,000. You've got 30,000 on a population of 140,000. And I can't remember what Finland's numbers, but it's something similar, similar to Sweden. To that, yeah. But yeah. I mean, you, when you look at the split, half of that harvest is almost in, uh, entirely of cows and calves. In some MUs, for whatever they call them there, seems be, they were 50 50, like yeah. bang on, 10 and 10. Yeah, so I mean, it's a significant portion of, of what they harvest. So anyway, I mean, so the, I guess the reason we bring that up is that as much as we have our version of it, there's competing perspectives that play out on the landscape and have done historically for a number of years uh, there's other management models that that look at it that. Um, I'm going to post a link to a couple of articles. One on some of the numbers um, about how they manage uh, moose um, in Scandi- in the Scandinavian countries, and a great article I found that compares uh, moose management strategies in, I believe, it's Sweden um, with how they manage them in Alaska. So we'll put that up on the on the Cutbanks uh, Conversations website. Uh, under our blog page just a little bit of extra stuff so you guys can take a look at that and just read it for yourselves it's an interesting perspective it may not be the one you had it certainly wasn't the one that I had because when just remember when all of this burst out I was with everybody else I was mad at the tag issuance I was pissed off um, and then I was really mad at the political the, the, I guess the, the political rhetoric that was coming out of it uh, then I paused the beat started to, you know, get my blood pressure down, started to think a little bit. And I said, okay, maybe I need to read some stuff. You know, and I, and, and I know lots of you might disagree with some of this, this. Remember, this is just an opinion, right? Just an opinion. Anyway, some good new stuff. So we uh, we had a big backcountry cleanup here. Uh, backcountry sort of more like backdoor cleanup right here inside the city of Prince George. Um, so we grabbed uh, a few volunteers We worked with Ya yeah, Prince George, which is a, a, a local Facebook group uh, in our community. that's super popular, like 40,000 members on plus on that page. It's crazy.
2: Over half the town.
0: Yeah. We got 80,000 people in this town and we got over 40,000 on it. And so we, I mean, and, and they're, they're good at um, at supporting the things that we do here at Spruce City. Um, so we got together with Dave Mothis from Halya, yeah, Prince George, and this is pretty cool. We ended up with, uh, about 50 volunteers, a bunch of, uh, local contracting businesses. They all showed up. We went behind an area that's super popular for ATVing and stuff, um, here inside town. Um, it's a, a, a big trail network, a great place for hiking and people walking their dogs and all that good stuff. Uh, we yanked out a dozen cars, uh, how many tons of garbage, Steve? Uh, six and a half
1: tons, and that doesn't include the what twelve vehicles that were pulled out.
0: Plus the steel, plus a yeah. bin and a half of steel, and uh, it was crazy. So anyway, we did that over you know four hours in a morning with fifty volunteers. So that was super cool. Um, but what that I, I get what I like about those initiatives, these little backcountry cleanups. It doesn't take a lot to organize. You need a few friends and a half ton, and in our case, you know, a regional district that cooperated and waiving some tipping fees. Uh, and that, re- that went really, really well. And it was a great community engagement piece. And the interesting thing is there's a, you know, as a hunting and fishing club, we're working with people that are absolutely, if, if you ask them if they hunt and if you, uh, they, their answer is hundred percent no, but we've coordinated on two more cleanup projects in, in town with them. Um, you know, and it's one, it, you got to meet people where they're at. And you know, what that person and I, what we what we connected with um, while we were doing the cleanup, it's like she's not into hunting, and I can guarantee you that if we had that discussion and we get real spirited, but she said we agree on this. So let's, let's let's just between the both of us is okay. Well, let's just let's just meet right here at this place, and this is the thing that we can combine our efforts on, and then we can just like agree to disagree on the other stuff. Uh, but in the in the meantime, you know, we'll, we'll do a little cleaning. So I thought that was a pretty cool engagement piece. Because uh, the more we got to know each other it's like, no, you're a hard- dar- uh, you're a hardcore hunter, and, and yeah it's like, <laughs> and you're a hardcore environmentalist and she, yep, but this is where we come together. So this is awesome. and you know i'm 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 uh, you know, we're now our friends on uh, Facebook and uh, and we're we're working together. so it's super cool. Uh, now, last thing uh, before we get to the the podcast uh we did our Indaco fry release. So Steve, let's talk a little bit about that. You're you're uh you've been a bit around that part. It's my first time actually doing any of the actual fish work. For anyone listening, I'm not super involved in the fish team, but I was on this one because they needed some extra hands, but let's talk a little bit about that partnership with Carrier Uh,
1: It started a couple of years ago as uh as most things do around here, a conversation around the table saying where's where needs our help. And uh we are a couple of years later, releasing ninety-two hundred Chinook fry into what is classified as a functionally extinct run. For the last twenty years or so, they've had at best, I believe, forty fish return all the way up here. So, putting ninety-two hundred back in is uh, is quite the event, as as you saw and took part in.
0: Yeah, it was super cool, and I think the the uh, we did a podcast and we we uh, one of our first podcasts on salmon. We talked a little bit about this initiative, but Karryshikani had uh, tribal council they had uh, a 20 year old milt uh, and that's what we did not get um, from Indaco. so we had females, we had ripe females, so we needed something for fertilization so we used their cryogenically frozen milk and it worked f- fabulously. The fish were actually they were you know they were right on the bubble of almost being too big because we, we had to hold them a little bit. There were some pretty fat little fish in there so uh, but it was cool we, and the other part that was great um, we had great support with uh, Pacific Salmon Foundation, DFO. Uh, 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 guy Sharf is our is our guy here. Sharf, yeah, yeah, um, here in town. He's a, he's just a great advocate with the club. Uh, so great support there. And then um, we had uh, TC Energy who are putting this coastal gasoline pipeline in. And uh, Steve had a conversation with them about donating some money, and uh, which was uh, awesome of them. And in our uh, in the eleventh hour, we needed to 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 pivot. Uh, and get a helicopter just to get access to the area where we needed to put them back in their natal stream. So uh, they uh, they came through. They ponied up for the bill, and uh, we got managed to get a helicopter to freight all those fish out. So it was awesome. Drove out to uh, about almost three hours here, so just a little bit past Fraser Lake, uh, just kind of up. Just you're, you're not too far from Babine uh, Babine Lake area, so Burns Lake area. So anyway, it was pretty cool. We uh, used the helicopter to port those fish over and. It was a kind of a neat day a really really neat day to work with everybody so uh good team effort good feel good good initiative uh and fun to bring it all the conclusion but i'm sure for the volunteers that have been feeding and looking after that salmon program probably time for a break so yeah
1: it, it really is it's uh, <laughs> it's it's almost a bittersweet time where we uh, you do grow attached to them as strange as it seems that uh you've fed these little guys for months and watched them sort of grow up and now they're off on their own and we're, we're going to see what happens in five years. And if we know if we see 50 fish, 10 above uh, what the brood was, we're, we're doing good. So we, we know we've made an impact.
0: It's funny. In the hatchery, you're always hearing water running and, and stuff <laughs> just with the process. And after it was all done and we shut the water off, you're sort of like parents as empty nesters, right? As it does, it does, it's like the kids have left, right? You got nothing left to do anymore. So That's exactly it. Yeah, maybe you'll go out and buy a Corvette. So anyway. <laughs> <laughs> do you know anywhere I can get one? Plug, plug, plug. Plug, 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 plug. plug, plug. <laughs> okay, Steve, uh, we're going to just uh, pause for the cause and get set up for our interview. And uh, we're going to be right back in just a minute uh, with Kyle Stelter from Wild Sheep Society. All right, quick shout out to our friend, Omer at Precision Optics. So if you find yourself in the market for some new optics, new rifle, whether it's Tika, fierce Seiko Weatherby like that new kick-ass Weatherby backcountry TI at 4.9 pounds in man bun friendly 6.5 Creedmoor I love it, I love it I'm out the the man bun piece but I totally love the rifle Uh, Omer is just a dynamite dude Uh, the guy seriously knows his shit if you're looking for optics whatever they are you're looking for guns whatever they are reloading equipment you name it the guy knows it precisionoptics.net on the interweb check out his Facebook page and if you can't find it Get a hold of me, I will get you a hold of him, and I'll give you a promo code that will get you absolutely no discount. But you will be connected with a dynamite guy who runs a dynamite business. Uh, and it's it's cozy right up in his little spot called Aroma Food. So if you're in the Quinnell area, once the COVID thing is over um, and you're driving through, you can go buy yourself a brand new rifle, a brand new scope, have a deadly conversation with a hardcore kick-ass hunting guy that actually supports the shit at a wild sheep society. Our kind of guy, uh, you, you need to see this guy. Grab some pizza buns, hit the deli, grab a coffee, uh, grab a latte. You're going to enjoy it. So, Omer, keep running that dynamite business, man. We love the support that you give for all things outdoors. And I know Wild Sheep loves you. And we are going to take a pause for the cause. And we will be right back with Kyle Stelter and the Wild Sheep Society. Cheers. All right, so uh, let's jump in. Here we are with Kyle Stelter from the Wild Sheep Society of British Columbia. Kyle, how goes it?
3: Fantastic, Don, and uh, Steve, thanks for having me on.
0: And we're here with, uh, just so you know, where our producer, Matt Wakeham, uh, is also here. He's going to just take some of his non-hunting perspective, and he's going to come up with a couple of hard questions for you at some point. Um, So first of all, Kyle, where's home for you?
3: Well, originally home for me was southern Alberta. I grew up um just uh, north of Medicine Hat, uh farming, small farming community, grew up on a farm. And then uh but today I'm on the West Coast. I'm in Victoria. I've been on the West Coast since 97, so I've been a BCer since then and uh loving the BC life and uh the uh, incredible habitat we have and the wildlife and just uh just honored to be part of the the BC landscape. So, Alberta boy at heart, but uh, BCer uh, for now
0: anyway. Yeah. You're preaching to the converted man. I'm a Saskatchewan transplant in 2015. I was born in Vancouver when I was, when I was little, but I, I'm here now. So I only identify as a BC'er now. So it's Saskatchewan. Likewise. Yeah. Saskatchewan where Alberta who yeah, exactly. So, <laughs>
3: um,
0: so what do you, so when you are, uh, when you're not wild sheeping, uh, how do you make your way in the world? What do you do for a living?
3: Yeah. So the, the wild sheep uh, thing is a volunteer, uh, job as. um, as it is for you guys with your conservation efforts there in uh, in PG. And uh, so my day job is an airline pilot. I'm flying around the world and uh, flying a 747 for an overseas airline. So that's, that keeps me occupied during the day. But it also gives me a lot of uh, opportunity down route to be uh, getting into conservation stuff. Anything uh, that you can do on a computer, it's a great opportunity for me when I'm away from uh, the family and away from home to do some conservation
0: work. Oh, that's awesome! So, okay, so let's play connect the dots a little bit. Um, what you grew up in a farm in a farming background? Did you start hunting in Alberta as a kid?
3: Yeah, I did. I, you know, that was part of. Uh, you know, we talk about hunter heritage, and it's truly really the case in my uh, my scenario. There, my grandfather hunted, my father hunted. Uh, I remember, you know, my earliest childhood memories were out white-tailed deer hunting. Uh, truly are. Um, one of my first things I recall with my grandfather was we we're driving through the pastures looking at mule deer. There's just mule deer. It seemed like everywhere as a kid. I'm sure it wasn't like that. but um, And that's kind of one of the things that fueled my conservation uh, efforts was I just feel, um, you know, now that uh, there's just not the animals on the landscape. And, and of course, uh, we're seeing that statistically as well. So um you know i just remember as a kid there was just so much wildlife it was so abundant and uh, granted it was alberta but i think it, you know holistically across the landscape wildlife numbers are dwindling and uh, and that was one of the things that i thought you know i got to do more and i got to start giving back and that's kind of where i got involved with it so yeah i grew up with a hunting family and uh my my father still hunts today um not as much he's in his 70s now but uh, that's kind of the the background and yeah I think I, in Alberta you can shoot a deer at 14. So I shot my first mule deer when I was 14 years old. My dad pulled pulled me out of school one day to take me uh, mule deer hunting, and um, you know he was out and hunting and he'd seen a nice buck, so he came and grabbed me out of school. And principal pulls me out of class, and I thought there was a family <laughs> emergency, and found myself in the truck, and Love I was it. trying to figure out what what the hell is going on, Dad. And he goes, Son, there's a hell of a mule deer buck out there. We got to get after.
1: That sounds like an emergency to me but yeah that is yeah.
0: yeah I love it that yeah. is that is that is a classic hunting that's hunting tradition at its finest my friend that's a great story so um certainly is, yes. so did you and you, just uh, just I guess to frame that uh, I I'm assuming that hunting was part of your dad's life too
3: uh, it was he grew up hunting with uh you know his his dad talking him how to hunt and uh so it's been in our family I, I remember as a kid you know uh by my mom and dad were farmers, and they were starting out. Didn't have much. They just had the farm. I, I was a you know young kid, and and we um, li- lived on on deer. That's that's basically what we ate. We um, we uh, go out, and that's that was what got us through the wintertime. So you know there wasn't a lot of money, and um, so that's kind of how I grew up, just eating wild meat, and it, it was just a part of what we did. Um, you know, my dad's made. Uh, deer sausage, uh, every year my entire life. I never remember a year where he missed, missed doing that. He's done that his, his entire life uh, and my entire life. So, uh, yeah, it's part of our culture, I guess, and part of my heritage and, and certainly something that I subscribe to and believe in. And, you know, I've taken my boys out and, uh, my, my son was fortunate enough to shoot a great black bear this spring. Um, and just trying to keep that tradition going and, and pass that heritage on. So did, did you take him out of school early to do that? No, I didn't. He was, uh, <laughs> yeah, he didn't skip school, do it. So yeah, I'm, I'm not quite the father that my dad was, but. Well, you didn't
0: learn all of the lessons, young Padawan, right? So, all right. Yeah. Um,
3: yeah.
0: okay. So then, so you, at some point you make the, I'm sure there's a, there's a career path that takes you into, you know, flight college, etc. But where, where t- tell me where you intersect with, um, with sheep hunting. When does that kind of get into your life?
3: It's actually pretty recent, Don, to be honest with you. Um, I came to the coast uh, in 97 so I never really found uh you know somebody I connected with uh hunting wise until it was 20 2007 I think it was I met my current hunting partner uh I was actually flying with him he's a pilot as well and uh we got talking uh about hunting and that sort of stuff and so we we discussed maybe getting together now he was actually hunting with another guy pretty consistently and, and then he dropped off the radar at one point. So in '09, he asked me to to go on a grizzly hunt with him, which um, we didn't make it happen until '10. And then uh, we had a great trip there. We had a successful harvest. And then in 2011, we said, "Well, let's go sheep, hun- uh, sheep hunting." And uh, and the rest is history. That was my first sheep hunt. So yeah, I've, I've only been in in the field for sheep for nine years. So I'm relatively inexperienced when it comes to the, the sheep world. But that's kind of where it began for me. Which um, leads me to the conservation aspect that that's what got me tied into the wild sheep society bc as well
0: so were you doing any or were you a? T- uh, were you doing conservation or with a conservation organization or had you before you became involved with the wild sheep society were you with other organizations or doing another work or was it that was just sort of your way into the conservation uh, part of hunting
3: you know i, I wasn't very active at all to be honest with you and i wasn't actually doing a lot of hunting either to be to be frank um but uh so 2009 is sort of when i started getting back into it i i certainly had my license and i would go out and um i didn't do a ton of hunting did a little bit more fishing at the time a friend of mine that i worked with um him and i did some fishing together and and we did the odd i did the odd hunting trip uh but it was pretty limited for the most part um now, when I moved to the island, um, I got involved with the Ladysmith, uh, Ladysmith fishing game and, uh, started doing some, a little bit of stuff there, like, uh, you know, some habitat work. They have a fishery. We do some, uh, uh, habitat work there with the fishery and we did some cleanups, but pretty limited to be honest with you. It wasn't until I got involved with the society where I, I kind of felt my, found my groove. And a lot of that was occupational again. A lot of the stuff that I do with the society. I can do in my room down route, maybe on a computer, um, that sort of stuff. So, um, you know, a lot of what I'm doing is not necessarily out in the field or doing cleanups because I'm gone half my life anyway or close to it. So that's one of the challenges, and that's where the society really worked for for me personally.
0: Okay. Okay. So I'm curious about – so the grizzly hunt, um, so when you did your first, that's really your first – that was a mountain hunt for grizzly bears?
3: Yeah, it was um, it was uh, Region 7. We uh, we put in for a draw in 2009, LEH. We both got drawn, and uh, I had plans to go that year in 2009. And then I had a work change. Actually, I got a promotion at work. Um, I got my upgrade as a captain, and they said, okay, well, you can come and be a captain on the airplane. and We're going to teach you how to do it. Or you can go grizzly bear hunting. And I'm like, well, <laughs> in, in theory, I can go grizzly bear hunting anytime. Yeah. <laughs> uh, little did we know. Um, or... Um, I can go and get my upgrade, get that out of the way, and then I can hunt, hunt grizzly bears for the rest of my life. So, um, I, you know, I talked to my partner and I said, hey, here's the deal. I've got this work upgrade. I worked with him. He understood the consequences or how important it was. And he said, you know what? Go do your course and next year we'll go again. So um, we reapplied the following year and tandem got drawn that year. And that's when we went off on our hunt. And I, I think he still went on his hunt that year with another buddy of his. Um, but, and I missed out on it. So, so when you looked
0: at... Um so you, you do the grizzly hunt, it's successful, you come back down. I mean, I'm assuming, that it was it just okay, so grizz, I, I did the grizzly bear thing, so it, was he a sheep hunter, This this the, the, your, your hunting partner? Was he a sheep hunter as well?
3: Exactly, and that was the tie-in. That's where, that was the hook. So, um, you know, we he, he is a mountain guy, he loves the mountain, and, and that hunt we did was, in, I think in 739, it was a mountain hunt. We, we backpacked and we did the whole thing. Um, and and it was a fantastic hunt. And I'd never mounted hunted. I I'd, I'd done a little bit on the prairies, but of course it's the flatlands. You know what it's like hunting in Saskatchewan. Yeah. And then I had I did a couple trips into the the foothills into you know I think I did an elk hunt once and a moose hunt, but uh, really low key stuff. Nothing too serious. And certainly nothing. You know, of course Alberta has great sheep sheep hunting opportunities, but I never did uh, get a draw there. And I, I, to be honest, I'm not even sure if I was applying at the time. This wasn't on the radar. I didn't really have any connections. And I, you know, so when he came out here and and I, I had that hunting opportunity to go for Grizz and then he said, hey, have you thought about sheep hunting? And I'm like, you know, I, I do love the adventure aspect and the backcountry aspect of it. For me, that's that's more the draw than anything is just getting away from people. Right. So being in the backcountry and I'm like, yeah, I'd love to do it. Um, naively and, uh, you know, <laughs> we're going to uh, cover after, that a little later. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So anyway, that was the, that was the offer. And I said, yep, yeah, for sure. And, uh, and then after that first trip, um, of course, the first week I wanted to do everything I could to get out of my sheep hunt. But after that, I was hooked for life. Um, you know, you, you, it's just such a life. It's a transformational experience that first hunt and either you love it or you hate it. And I, I was one of the guys that happened to. I love it, and and it's stuck
1: with me ever since. So, you really make it sound so appealing, you know.
3: <laughs> <laughs> so, so, yeah. so, so, we
1: talk about hunter heritage and it being ingrained over the years into into people's families and and, and growing up with it and passing it on. Uh, so, we we go back sixty some odd years, and that's when the BC Wildlife Federation was formed, a major conservation organization provincially. We go back 50 years to 1970 and, and we've got the Spruce City Wildlife that was formed. And when I got involved with the Wild Sheep Society myself a couple of years ago, I was floored to know that it's actually one of the the youngest uh, conservation organizations in British Columbia, uh, formed in 1998. And that uh, that really took me by surprise for the amount of work that has been done over the years uh, by the society itself uh what what can you tell me a little bit more about the, the history of the society? why was it formed and uh, how did this, this this take place?
3: Yeah, Steve, uh, good points you raised there and uh, there's a couple things that you know and I just referred to it there about the sheep hunting aspect and I think sheep hunters are um, you know there's something unique about them. I don't know if it's special or um, or, or what, but there's something unique about them that, um once you experience it it kind of hooks you for life and there's just this connection and um, you know i for your listeners i'm sure they see it on facebook that you know there's this fascination with wild sheep right and i think those that have experienced it and and had an opportunity to spend time in the outdoors with wild sheep there's just some fascination of course it adorns our coat of arms for the for british columbia um, it's at the very top uh, there's a uh, wild sheep at the top of our coat of arms so it's to me that speaks volumes right there. It's kind of one of our keystone species um, and it's iconic. So I think that, um, you know, people have a special reverence for wild sheep, Um, you know, not everyone can see them. Not everyone has the opportunity to go out and enjoy them. And I I think that people that that, uh, are part of our organization or support wild sheep have this unique perspective and they're super passionate about it. And they're willing to dedicate a lot of time um, and money and effort to make sure that they survive and, and not necessarily hunted either. We have lots of members that, that are hunters, you know, we are a hunter conservationist organization, but they're not necessarily um, hunting them. I'll, you know, probably, I, I don't know how many of our members have harvested Sheep, but I, I know a, a significant amount haven't. So, you know, I think it's just the the species itself that it's uh they're majestic. Um, and just to go and see them is an effort in itself. And I think that, that, that passion was translated into our membership and, and just the wild well, sheep advocates across the board that they're super passionate about what they do. And, and I think that's what's driven our organization. I think we've got a bunch of people that really care about them and, um, everyone's just trying to do their best to make sure that they're, they're successful.
0: So when you look at, uh, and they are iconic and Steve and I are putting our hands up cause we're two of the guys that are members that uh, don't hunt sheep yet i keep adding i keep adding what what, one day one one day these old Uh, bones may try that i've seen a sheep (laughs) (laughs) yeah you've seen the back of a sheep that's for sure so uh i see what you did there yeah i see what you did there sorry kyle we digress anyway um so uh, with wild sheep society there's connective tissue obviously to the wild sheep foundation so um how, how do those two things come together or wh- where do those two organizations come together? How often, or, you know, I know that you'll have, you, you have a separate board and, you know, we're, we're in different parts of the country and, or different countries, pardon me. So, but how do they, how do you connect the dots to the Wild Sheep Foundation?
3: Yeah, for sure, Don. And and back to Steve's question there about the history, basically the society itself was born from a concern by hunter conservationists that we're seeing dwindling sheep numbers and it was on the Fraser river um and that happened in the early nineteen nineties. There was a pretty significant die-off, um, mostly expected or believed to be because of disease. And hunter conservationists were seeing these numbers and saying, hey, these numbers are down. We need to do something about it. And that's where the society evolved from. Now, in those early days, um one of the um one of the individuals from the at the time FNAWs, which is a North American uh, Wild Foundation for the North American Wild Sheep. Uh, came up and basically did a presentation and said, hey, um, you know, you're starting up this group, and why don't you join us as an affiliate? And at the time, um, during their first AGM, I believe it was, they voted to become an affiliate of, at the time, Panaz. Now, uh, fast forward uh, 20 years, Panaz evolved, and they had a name change to the Wild Sheep Foundation. So the parent organization for all wild sheep worldwide, I guess you could say, is the Wild Sheep Foundation. They kind of look after the resource, um, as an organization based in Montana, Bozeman, um, a great organization. I'm, uh, I'm a Summit Life member with them and also on their board of directors. Now, uh, the, uh, Wild Sheep Foundation is a separate entity from the Wild Sheep Society of BC. We voted our, our leaders at the time back in the day voted to join as an affiliate, and we're just that. The Wild Sheep Society BC is an affiliate of the Wild Sheep Foundation. Now they have 20 or 30 affiliates across the board. So there's um, a number of organizations that are affiliates of the uh, Wild Sheep Foundation. And some of them aren't even sheep hunting organizations. There's uh, the uh, International uh, Caribou Foundation. Um, So they're advocating for caribou. Uh, There's a number of other organizations that believe in the mission statement of the Wild Sheep Foundation and want to support conservation efforts. And we happen to be one of those. So we're arm's length from the foundation as an affiliate, uh, but uh, we do have very close contact with them. Um, There's tons of support from our parent group, uh, the the foundation. And then there's tons of chapter and affiliates um, across the board throughout North America that are involved with the Wild Sheep Foundation as well. Just like the Wild Sheep Society BC in Alberta, obviously, there's the Wild Sheep Foundation Alberta, which is... um, Again, a separate entity that's not actually part of the Wild Sheep Foundation. It's, um, I'm not sure if they're actually a chapter and affiliate. There's different designations, but, uh, affiliate being a little bit less than a chapter. So that's kind of how we're interconnected, but we have a very, we talk about it, um, almost, um, religiously, maybe not the right word, but, um, as a Wild Sheep family and, and truly, um, I feel that, uh, the Wild Sheep Foundation and its chapter and affiliates really talk the talk, and walk the walk, and COVID-19 really brought us even closer together. I see a lot of uh, chapters and affiliates reaching out to one another, trying to support one another, so the Wild Sheep Foundation um, family is a thing, and uh, we refer to it as our our Wild Sheep family, and it truly is, uh, as far as I can tell, I I feel that way, and I think most of our, our members do have our chapter and affiliates in the foundation itself.
0: So it's a, uh, I mean, it, it, and I think it, it's those core ideals that everybody resonates with. Um, so when we look at that, so I just want to talk a little bit about, let's just talk about scope or scale, I guess. Um, how many members of the wild sheep society in British
3: Columbia? Roughly a thousand dollars.
0: And is that, is that a fairly consistent amount? Or have you found that there's, is it, is it like at a thousand or has it been growing or?
3: We have had um, uh, significant growth. Actually, I, I'm fairly new to the board of directors. Um I only got involved about four years ago um on the board and at the time uh we had uh about three hundred and fifty members. Um so um it, it's gone, it's have been flowed through over the throughout the years. I think uh certainly as of today, um we had a new membership uh, member sign up today. Um this is the highest we've ever been uh and as happens to every day we we sort of see some growth. Um, so we're, we're pushing on that thousand now, but we've tripled our growth over the last three or four years, which is, you know, fantastic. And, uh, there's still a lot of work to be done, but I'm really excited to see the growth, um, over the last few years.
0: You know, I, I know for me personally, so I'm a, I would, I'm an aspirational sheep hunter in that it was much like you coming from the prairies. Uh, when you, when you come to British Columbia, you, it opens up a whole new, um, I, I i guess a whole new realm of possibility for for species that you can hunt and then you sort of you categorize those you know at least for me like you know, what, what do i think i could reasonably get access to uh what am i prepared to do and sheep and goats um because that to me that's hunting vertically uh presents a different level of challenge um but that aside um i was i was really compelled since i've been here uh wild sheep stood out for me uh significantly just as an organization um a terrific footprint in in conservation uh, a real good strong sense of itself um and and something that really resonated core values that really resonate with me as a hunter regardless of whether you know i wear you know kuyu and first leg gear and put on a kafaru pack and you know climb three thousand feet it was more than that it was it was a little bit of that family sense. Um, and I'm really, th- there's a very strong identity, uh, for sheep hunters. That's one thing that I've noticed, uh, when I look at them and I can say that pretty collectively, they, they have a very strong I- uh, identity. They know who they are. They know what they're interested in. They're wildly passionate, um, about the, the animals that they hunt. Tons of respect. Um, and they definitely, they know the, they know the, the animal that they're pursuing. They know it intimately. Um, But beyond that, so those are the things that were sort of compelled me. So I became a member just just this past year, um, only because I just really like the work that's being done. And I just thought that's, you know, uh, more than just Spruce. There's other organizations I like to put my money behind. And this is is the first one that I joined that was outside of Spruce City. So what do you think? And when when you said... (laughs) sheep hunters are kind of a different you know they're 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 a slightly different breed and they're they're unified by different things what do you think brings them not just a I guess if it it brings into wild sheep it probably brings them into sheep hunting what do you think that thing is that uh, brings them into the into the fold as a sheep hunter and then into the organization
3: uh that's a a great question and before I I delve into that I want to Thank you and Steve uh, for both uh, your membership. Steve's a life member and, and, uh, you know, we're honored to have both of you guys and hopefully by the end of the call here, I'll get Matt on board as well, but, uh, <laughs> we're, we're, we're certainly thankful for, uh, for your guys' membership. And, uh, you know, I think, um, I think what it goes back to is a couple things, uh, the sheets themselves, right. And I talked about that earlier, just the species and, um, you know, that, uh, there's just something majestic about it where they live um how um how challenging it is to to hunt how many you know barriers to to being successful in a sheep hunt so there's there's kind of that um you know um uh, I don't know that hard work or determination required to be you know basically a sheep hunter but that said there's so i think that the species itself lends it, itself to um you know our membership and, and the core strength behind them but I think what it comes back to is what I talked about just in this last question was about our wild sheep family. Um, and I'm hoping, Dawn, we can get you down to our Camelot Convention or Northern Fundraiser. And I know uh, you've been trying to come last couple of years and there's been a few Um, obstacles to you not being able to make it, I think. Did you make it to the Northern last year? I think that you had plans and then it fell through. Yeah,
0: every time I try to get up there, something has come up. Usually for me, it's work-related with just the dealership. But uh, I always always donate. That's the important part, Kyle, is I always donate. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, you do.
3: And and that's where I'd love to get you up there. And, uh, you know, truly this family aspect, um, you know, as I, I think maybe sheep hunters have this, there's been a tendency to call us elitists or, you know, this, uh, you know, there's kind of this elitist, um, perception, but the thing is, is if you come to one of our shows and you walk in, you truly feel like you're amongst friends, even though you've never been there before. And I can say that honestly, because I remember my first, um, going to my first, uh, Kamloops convention and, uh, didn't know a single, per. actually I knew one person. Um, I knew of them. And by the time I left there, I had literally dozens and dozens of people um, that I considered uh, friends with, and people that instantly I connected with, and I reached out to, and, and they were giving me their sheep spots for crying out loud. Which you no, know, they were, get, no, get that
0: I, that's not true.
3: <laughs> <laughs> Literally, my first uh, my first uh, convention I went to, I walk in, I, I ironically I'd drawn a doll sheep tag that year, and um, I had people you know t- t- taking me in. Back to their room and, and whispering secrets in my ear about their secrets <laughs> their sheep spots and 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 believe it or not uh believe it or not that um one of our life members a a, a great guy and a, and a friend he marked an x on the map and told me how to do it and where to go and that year um i got my doll sheep within where, where the X was literally believe it or not um it's it's a true story so um, you know, that's a testament to, yeah, to this is. organization and to the people that are involved. And I, I don't feel like, uh, you know, I think sheep hunters get this, uh, you know, um, reputation of being elitist because there are a number of barriers to entry. But I think because there are barriers to entry, you have a support group of people that if you if you want to rely on those people, um, they're going to take care of you. And, and they've done that to me in this organization. And I've I've paid it forward for sure. Um, there's no question that I, I've helped other guys out. And, um, you know, so it, I think that's part of it. I think it's the, the whole wild sheep family. And, um, you know, it's just getting the word out about that family. I think that, you know, we're a pretty small organization. So people, people look at it and they go, well, you know, these guys are sheep guys and I don't really care about sheep hunting. So why would I join? But, uh, you know, obviously a lot of what we do is conservation work. We, we put a, a ton of money on the ground these last, uh, well, 20 years for sure but certainly the last two years we've done some fantastic work in terms of conservation and uh, that's benefited a ton of different species not just wild sheep as you know um, wild sheep is a keystone species and if wild sheep's doing well generally a lot of other species is doing well um, so the, the, the conservation of work that we're doing on the ground for wild sheep is benefiting all these other species so, you know, I, I don't think that there's a valid argument that, you know, oh, well, you guys are wild sheep. But how does that help the other species that I may be a hunter, I may be care about? So um, I, I think there's an opportunity for more than just the sheep hunter to be involved. And what I'd like to see is I'd just like to see people that care about conservation and habitat and wildlife to be part of our organization so that we can do better work on the ground. Back
1: to that X on the map, uh, asking for a friend. Can we chat later?
3: (laughs) (laughs) Buddy, you you get drawn, I'll take care of you. I promise. I I I will leave you there.
1: I'm quite all right with that. And I can actually speak a little bit more on the the family feeling. Uh, As you know, I was down in Reno with you guys this past January, and it was my first show. And I I went down there knowing you and a couple others. And by the time I'd left four days later, five days later, I've got – a, a ton of what I would consider some lifelong friends that uh, just happen to be sitting at the same table. So yeah, it's 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 really really quite welcoming.
0: It's um, so I I think that's an appeal for just about um, for any any um, hunting organization. It's part of what attracted me is to find like minded people. Right? Um, you want to mm-hmm. find like minded pardon like minded people that see the world the, the same way you do. And 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 in the case of sheep hunting. It's not just see it. There's a unique shared experience um, that includes a lot of suffering <laughs> to to become a <laughs> she, to become a sheep hunter. Uh, and like you said, I mean, there there are barriers It's a price of admission. And I think there's something you know. And I, I was I remember being in the reserves uh, as a much younger me. But you, when you go through that, the you know some of the friends that I made when I was in the reserves after after high school, I was in Ottawa. And I just remember you go through you know basic training. And you know we, we we came through the the summer program. Some of my friends went on to be regular soldiers. Um, and there, there's something that get that gets bonded when you have a, sh- a shared experience. I think the reason that sheep hunters are such a tight knit thing. I mean, us road hunters, um, there's not that. I mean, it, it's it. The only thing that we share is that we have to go to the gas station, Seven Eleven, to make sure there's a Tim Hortons close, right? Um, I mean, it's not you're not suffering much for to, to drive down the road and hunt. But when you have to, when you have to, you know, be away and and risk a lot, and it's you know seven to ten or twelve days. 15 days and it's backbreaking and it's, it's all, it's all leg power, stamina and, and mental will. Um, and, and having, you know, obviously an incredible constitution. Um, that's a, that's a, I mean, it's gut wrenching, but there's a huge reward. And I think, I think that's one of the attractions is if, if you can, if you can pass the test, even just whether you get the sheep or not, doesn't matter. It's that you see other people doing it. And I think that's the part that's compelling. So super cool. Um, I want to pivot to um, a little bit about you. You were you were talking about conservation specifically. What are the what would be the core in, um, uh, initiatives from a conservation standpoint that Wild Sheep uh, BC is is kind of putting in play, trying to put sheep on the mountain?
3: Yeah. So our our mission or you know our our tagline is we're dedicated to protection enhancement of wild sheep and wild sheep habitat throughout beautiful British Columbia. So that's kind of a nutshell of what we're trying to achieve. And there's a whole bunch of different initiatives that we're doing there. Um, obviously any work that we can do habitat wise is, is huge, but really one of the drivers that we've been working on um, for the last decade that, that really brings us back to the early 1990s, which spawned the organization is this disease issue. And um, you guys have maybe heard of, um, you know, issues around wild sheep and domestic sheep and the interaction there. And, um, really, that's one of the challenges that we've been facing, and that's just um, been a focus for us as an organization, trying to work through that disease issue. Now, if you look on our website, it talks about transplants. Well, I've never seen a transplant in my time um, on the board of directors, certainly with the society, and that's because of this disease issue. Obviously, if you are going to transplant a sheep, you want to make sure that they're healthy and they're going to go to another healthy ecosystem that's going to be de- disease-free as well. And we haven't been able to do that in B.C. B.C. historically has been the, the um, seed for sheep all across North America. We've transplanted sheep from the Fraser River ecosystem to states all across um, the lower 48 um, to um, different populations in, in Alberta and B.C. Um, and it's, we're, we were known for that. But the disease issue has, has changed all that. So that's obviously high on the radar is the disease issue. I can't say we're putting a ton of money into it, but there's a ton of advocacy work being done there um, and some money as well. Um, We have been working, trying to work with the um, domestic producers and breeders and trying to work closely with them and trying to develop a relationship um, that we can coexist. We can find a space for wild sheep and a space for domestic producers so that both of us can exist in this ecosystem uh, healthy and, and successfully. But then when it comes to on the groundwork, we've done a ton of stuff. Um, we've got um, burns is high on the list of things we like to do and we want to do, but there's been a ton of challenges there. We've put money into it. where We've got all the groundwork, several cases for habitat work with regards to burns, um, but really the only one that we successfully pulled off last year was a partnership with the Okanagan uh, Nation Alliance, uh ONA. Um, we were part of... Uh, a project with them that we got a successful burn off. So a burn's a big one uh, in the East Kootenays. One of the challenges invasive weeds. So we put a bunch of resources into that. Um, we've been helping out with that. Um, and then a big bulk of what we're doing is um, health herd assessment. So we're uh, trying to establish the level of disease, habitat use, predation. Um, to get a really good handle on it, we know there's been a problem in that Fraser River ecosystem in region three and region five, literally since the 1990s, and they've never fully recovered. Um, and there's, um, smaller population units that our project chair, Chris Barker, I talked to him about it today earlier. He, he said, you know, there's population units that have 1500 animals that, you know, they figure the carrying capacity is around 4500. So there's lots of work to be done there. We're slowly building it back up. We're, we're slowly Putting the pieces in place, but we're kind of uh, you know it's an iterative process and, and something that requires a, a long-term approach to it. And so, a lot of what we're doing right now in Region Three and Region Five is this health herd assessment and trying to establish how bad that disease is. And then, in some cases, we have um, been involved in um, in a call. There has been some calls regarding um, some sick animals around there, and really, um, right now, that's one of one of the ways to try and deal with this, this disease issue.
1: So I I saw an amazing commercial on um, uh, Wild TV and Sportsman's channel there, and it was Jim Shockey, I believe, and uh, he he talked about something about the amount of money the Wild Sheep Society has put into the ground in the last few years. And I I imagine that's kind of uh, the the projects you just spoke on, but what was the total?
3: Um, Well, last year we were um, close to a quarter million dollars for the Wild Sheep Society of BC alone. Um, and close to half a million with partner funding. So, um, that's a huge number, um, coming from a tiny little organization of a thousand members. And yeah, that's something great, that, yeah. you, you know, our membership should be so proud of. And, and you know, uh, and kudos to Spruce City. I know you guys are doing fantastic work. I talked to Steve often about the work that you guys have been doing and, and the partner funding you've been doing there as well. So yeah, in some ways, I see a, a parallel with our two organizations, right? In, in that regard. Uh, but I, I you know, I have to give our hats off to our membership for the support they've given us and to be able to do that level of funding with, with uh, very little, a lot with very little basically, right?
1: Oh, absolutely. It, it, it does take a pile of money, and uh, there, there's fundraisers and stuff going on all the time, and I, I know that uh, there's a, a pretty kick-ass one going on right now. I bought my ticket today? He did. He actually did. I'm uh, <laughs> talking about the, 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 the Dream the dream Rifle Raffle, or is, is, is I believe what it's called. It's 50 bucks a ticket, and uh, I believe the, the number one prize is something like $17,000 for one rifle. And that all that money goes to projects like you just talked about—the burns and the, the health herd assessments, and things like that. And uh, we're we're incredibly thankful to to be able to partner with uh, such amazing biologists like uh, Bill Jacks and uh, Helen. And she'll kill me if I can't pronounce her last name, but she did give me a, a little rhyming thing in Reno, and it was Swancha because I remember she said I want you Swancha. <laughs>
3: <laughs> so yeah, having having
1: haven't, having experts like that that uh, that lend their 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 knowledge to us allows us to to get better things done on the landscape and and gets gets that buy in from uh, the stakeholders and the partners that we so desperately seek and need to make these things successful.
3: Yeah, absolutely, Steve. You know that's uh, really you know we have our core projects team that that works uh, on this stuff, but we work. Um, consistently with wildlife biologists, regional biologists all across the, the landscape. And Region 3 through Region 8, um, you know, our projects chair, Chris Barker, and vice chair, Robin Routledge, are always on the phone with regional bios talking about new projects, where the funding can go, what's important, the steps that need to be in place so that we can take it to the next level so that we can get that health care assessment done so then we can disease, deal with the disease issue, and then we can do some habitat enhancement work and then maybe that'll lead to a healthy herd, which eventually will lead to a transplant. So um, regional bios are driving that. And then back to this rifle raffle you talked about, it's the, you know, the members that are supporting us, but also our donors and sponsors. And if you look at that, uh, that rifle raffle, um, that was uh prize package is 30 grand, um, and that was fully donated. Um, precision optics is behind that. Um, Ulmer basically made that happen, but um, great support putting it all together um, with the other stakeholders or other donors as well. So, you know, we, we need all these pieces. We need, uh, we need the organization. We need the regional bios. We need the donors, the sponsors, the members. And it's when all these things come together that allows us to put that quarter million dollars on the ground. Um, and if one of those pieces is missing, then none of that exists. Right. So, you know, you really got to take your hat off to all these um, different moving pieces that make this a success. And one of the things that, you know, I'm incredibly proud of, of our organization and our members that have, have put this together.
0: So when we, we take a look at uh, the, the efforts, all lead to at some point, uh, conservation leads to outcomes. So we're going to, let's just let's just talk a little bit about the, the state of sheep populations in BC. So uh, the, the two principal sheep populations that you're, we're hunting here are dull sheep and uh, stone sheep. Uh, where are the population levels at? Um, would you consider them? Good, balanced, healthy. Uh, if you if you had to give it a thumbs up, thumbs down, where are we at with with our sheep populations?
3: Uh, I, I think Don, being the pessimist, I'd say fair to middling, but realistically, we're doing pretty darn good um, holistically. Um, when we look across the landscape, um, if you look back to uh, like pre-Columbian days, they said there was one and a half to two million dollars, uh, two million uh, bighorns on the landscape. That was the estimate. Um, that number fell, um, in the early 1900s to, I think they said 15 to 20,000 all across North America. Um, they absolutely decimated a variety of reasons, uh, market hunting and disease was rampant. There's a whole bunch of things. And, um, through the conservation efforts of, uh, organizations like the Wild Sheep Society of BC, but also the Wild Sheep Foundation and all their chapters and affiliates and other conservation organizations, we built this back to, there's roughly, I think, 80,000 bighorns in North America now. Um, so that's a huge success story when wow. you think that's a um, nice it's turn, yeah. fourfold of what it was, right? Um, and I think that, you know, sixties the 1960s and when we started to see the increases, and they continue to do so. And there's some great um, work being done all across North America. It's not just BC or Alberta. It's, it's all across um, the North America landscape. Um, now in BC itself, there's roughly 19 to 20,000 sheep. So we've got the four subspecies of sheep in BC. So we've got thin horns and we've got bighorns. In the north, we've got the dolls and stones, which you just referenced. And that population is relatively stable at around 13,000. That might be a bit optimistic, but it's, um, it's, it's certainly solid in around that 13,000 mark. Um, when it comes to bighorns, we've got two species of bighorns in subspecies of bighorns in in BC, and it's the uh, Rocky Mountain and the California, and uh, right now that number is around 6,500, and it, it's relatively stable and maybe slightly increasing. Now, there are some cell populations that are, are decreasing, but others that are, are doing a little bit better, um, but the real struggle in the southern part of the province is dealing with this disease issue that we talked about, and if that disease issue went away, that number would be much more robust than it currently is. Um, you know, disease isn't the only issue as we, as you can imagine, but that's one of the big ones for us. Is,
0: is habitat or, or, or range, I guess, for sheep, is that, is that a principal, uh, issue for, for that particular species?
3: Absolutely. Yes. Sheep are particularly sensitive to, uh, habitat loss, whether it be industry or, uh, encroachment due to, um, you know, buildings and, and, you know, of course you see it in the, uh, you know, you drive through Kelowna and you see sheep on the side of the highway, well, it's because people are building their houses in their backyard. So uh, there's been a lot of habitat loss, and and that's certainly one of the drivers that has affected uh, wild sheep populations, certainly in the southern part of the, the province. Not so much in the north, but of course, in the north, there's other issues, um, industry uh, resource extraction, all that sort of stuff has affected uh, that as well. But it's not as prevalent as in southern BC.
0: So from a so overall, we have a fairly healthy population of sheep. We have some habitat issues that need to be addressed. Is the disease that you're talking about? I mean, I've heard pneumonia and stuff referenced in uh, w- with sheep quite a bit. That there's a tendency for that. Is there any other disease or or, or maladies that affect these populations?
3: Yeah, there are. Don' there's uh, there's several. And to be honest, I'm I'm not uh, I'm the first to admit I'm not a, a biologist. But the the biggest threat by far. Um, and the one of the biggest challenges for wild sheep is, uh, you maybe heard the, the term before, MOV, which is micro, micro microplasma OV pneumonia. Um, and that is really by far the biggest challenge for wild sheep, um, in southern BC, um, and really across the landscape. If you look all across North America for bighorn sheep, that's definitely the biggest challenge for them. Now there's other factors too. There's other things that are killing them, um, other diseases. And, um, you know, quite often when we go, when I go to these briefings, especially with the Wild Sheep Foundation, their biologists do a very good job of explaining the other ones, but really the, the focus is a movi. If we can sort a movi, then these other ones uh, are pretty small potatoes in the realm of things compared to movi.
1: Movi is, how is that transmitted? I, I, uh, give a background a little bit on that. Is it, That's preventable, I hear.
3: Yeah, it, it is and isn't, Steve. Uh, it, historically. Uh, years ago, biologists figured it was spread by, uh, by touch. So, you know, a, a ram, as an example, uh, is once uh, the, uh, is, in heat runs there, is looking for a mate, runs down, sees a, a herd of uh, ewes down in the field, domestic sheep, runs down, uh, wind to breed, and then, you know, that interaction there, nose to nose, and then However, um, they, there's been a number of studies and a lot of money spent on studying MOV. Um, and then eventually they figured out, no, it's actually airborne. So, um, they can actually transmit. Um, so what we, for a while there, we just started doing, uh, double fencing, right? So we said, okay, well, we'll keep them apart. So if you're in sheep country and you've got domestics, we'll just put a 20 foot barrier between and we'll double fence, which doesn't always work if you've got a small operation, but it's better than nothing. Um, so, and big commercial operations, will work with them on that, but then when um, there's cases where they figure it's traveled like up to a 100 feet or something like that, it became pretty clear that double fencing wasn't going to work. So, MOV can be spread airborne, um, and it's one of the challenges and one of the biggest threats to, to wild sheep that we're dealing with right now that, that has kind of stopped this transplant that, you know, we'd love to be transplanting sheep all across, you know, to new healthy landscapes, but... Uh, if you've got unhealthy herds, you can't do that. Okay.
0: Um, are there any other, um, are there, are there any projects or any other initiatives you wish you guys could tackle as an organization that you haven't yet? I know you, you referenced burns, which is one of them, but is there, I mean, if, in your heart of hearts in that organization, um, w- w- what sort of left undone um, from an organizational level for wild sheep? What do you think that, what's the, what's the challenge or the the project that you wish you could get into play? or is there? Yeah, uh,
3: yeah, well there is, Dawn, and that's a great question and and uh, you kind of uh, referenced that, you know, burns is a big one right now that um it seems like any little thing with a burn, um, you know, we can't get approval to do it and it can be, you know, we we've had uh the argument that we can't do it because of uh it's encroaching on caribou habitat and it might influence caribou, which of course that is a huge concern caribou um conservation, trying to rehabilitate the dwindling herds, that's a huge issue and needs to be addressed. Um, but, you know, we are trying to do some high-level burns that weren't going through because of caribou, which really was their traditional range. So, you know, it seems like there's a lot of obstacles there. That's one of the things would be great. But, you know, me personally, from a project perspective, the one thing I'd love to see, Don, I'd love to go out and see a transplant. Um, you know, all my predecessors that have kind of been around the society for years that I'm on the board of directors with that have been involved, I've all done transplants. I've never had that opportunity. I'd love to get out and handle a wild sheep and see a new habitat and, and, and see the success of that. So um, I'm looking to one day when we've got this disease issue sorted, to have that uh, opportunity to do a transplant. But what I, I really think is important and, and work that we can do as an organization that we continue to work on, and we haven't quite figured it out yet, is the advocacy aspect for um disease mitigation and working with the domestic sheep producers to come up with a solution that's going to protect wild sheep. And there's been a number of initiatives we've been involved with. We we quite often go to um the Parliament buildings and meet with the Minister of Agriculture. Um, I've had several meetings myself with um Lana Popham. Um, we've worked closely with AG trying to come up with a solution for wild sheep and the advocacy. And what we're trying to do is we're trying to have some exclusion areas. So on the Fraser, let's have an exclusionary. Let's give our wild sheep an opportunity, a place to live and just not have domestic operations in those areas. Yeah. And um, trying to get that is very challenging. By no means do I think that business shouldn't thrive. We're all for healthy agriculture. We want to see domestic sheep producers have a successful uh, business and we'd love to, to see them flourish on the landscape alongside with us. But if we keep mixing wild and domestic, uh, it's just going to weed eventually the wild sheep will, will never solve the disease issue. So we've been working very hard on exclusion zone and, um, we've had some small steps and some small successes and some, some small wins. And we're currently at the table talking with ag right now, but it's one of the challenges that we continue to deal with. And there are domestic producers that are keen to solve this issue with us. There are domestic producers that we are working with right now that are working towards Moby Sleaf flocks. Um, in domestic sheep, if we can eradicate the then we've solved the problem. And domestic, there are domestic producers out there that do want to do that. So we do work with them in many cases and, um, having some exclusion zones. Um, we've been working on that with, um, uh, it's certainly in the North. There's a, a unique opportunity now where we could have an exclusion zone to protect wild sheep because there's really no domestic production in the North, in those areas. But if we don't do it, eventually people are going to, you know, land will become more expensive in the South. They'll sell out and they'll move their flock to the North. Um, Now there are counter arguments for that, but that's one of the things that we've been working on as an organization.
0: Okay. Well, that, I mean, that's a fairly, that's a, that's not a small undertaking. It's significant because you're trying to, you're trying to do a, a number of things. You have to get a ministry on board. Then you have to get land continuity is the other part, because it's to have an exclusionary zone in an area that's producing, actively producing a domestic sheep operation you need a continuous uh, dividing line that you can actually protect, um, and that's not an easy task. The logistics of, of an exclusionary zone applied in an ag area is it, that is no small undertaking. So, I wish you well with mm-hmm. that one, my friend. <laughs> I, <laughs> Thank
3: I, I, you. I, I hope I
0: hope you can get it done, but I just I know what you're sitting in front of, and that's not going to be an easy task. The but the encouraging mm-hmm. part is is that you've got some, at least you've got some buy-in from some producers, and that's half the battle uh, versus getting stonewalled out of the gate. So,
3: Yeah, and you know what? Uh, I have to give my hats off to the Ministry of Ag as well. The uh, Ministry of Ag, you know, they have uh, been very supportive as well. Obviously, their mandate is to look after their constituents and look after uh, agriculture. That's their job. But, um, you know, hats off to uh, the Ministry of Ag and the work they've been doing and trying to find it. A mutual solution that benefits everybody. Everyone's happy. A win-win for everyone. That's obviously what we're looking for there. So. Yeah, that's awesome.
0: Okay, so here we're gonna we're gonna switch gears a little bit, and I'm gonna pick your brain. <laughs> we're gonna pretend. Okay. What, I'm, what I would like to set the stage for is somebody like myself um, that is an aspiring uh, someday sheep hunter. Maybe just one time, um, but it, it's something that for me, if 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 it's a bucket list, it's a, if you want to call it that. But for somebody that uh, that says, okay, I, hey, I've done the I've done the white-tailed deer thing, and I've done the mule deer thing, and I've done the elk thing, and now I I want to become a sheep hunter, um, <laughs> you know, I bought the kuyu gear, right, so I you know I I got the kuyu gear and I got the pack, uh, I, I get that, but looking like a sheep hunter and and the other, it's not just how you look and it's not just whether you got a rifle. There's a whole level of consideration, um, that goes into that, and it's I think. When you earlier, you had talked about that whole elitist perception of sheep hunting. And, and I think that's part of it, um, is, is because of there, like you said, there, there's barriers to getting into it. It's gear, it's knowledge, it's, uh, conditioning. Um, and there's a whole, there's a whole layer of things that I kind of want to work my way through. So, um, when, when you first started or when you're talking to somebody that's getting started, what are the kind of the core things that you sort of walk them through? Okay. So you want to go sheep hunting, you know, if you said like, here are the five things, you know, that you gotta, you gotta keep in mind before you get going on this thing. Like what are the things that you think are the keys for, for being successful that first time out?
3: Yeah, great question. And I think that, um, and okay, I'm going to do a little bit of self-promotion to our organization here, but, um, realistically, um, you know, having a mentor is a big part of it. And um, you know, if I had to pick the top five things, I could I could tell you. Well, you got to know where to go, and then you got to know how. You know, you got your conditioning is really important. Probably the most important thing, to be honest with you. So your location first, then your conditioning, then your gear. um, And uh, obviously, there's certain gear that goes without saying. But uh, you know, if you some guys are so worried about saving two pounds on gear, and will spend hundreds, if not thousands, of dollars trying to do that. And then they're not training. So they never get the opportunity to actually use the gear because they didn't uh, have the ability to get out in the field and take make proper use of it. So, you know, I always love these old-time sheep hunting pictures where you see guys on the side of the mountain and they're in, literally in running shoes and jeans and a plaid shirt. Yeah. And <laughs> somehow they still <laughs> managed to kill a gear, uh, kill a sheep. They, they didn't have a kuya gear. They didn't have a, a six-pound <laughs> rifle. They didn't have boots for that matter, right? Yeah. So now arguably sheep hunting is a bit more challenging these days because there's um you know sheep are uh, spooked and there's more probably more pressure on them and that sort of stuff there's internet resources so these easy to get to spots are not so secret anymore all these different factors but realistically and and i truly mean this is that um you know coming to our our convention in Kamloops is a great one it's a two-day event and it's you know if you want to if you want to learn how to be a cowboy, what do you do? You go to a rodeo and meet a cowboy, right? Like they're <laughs> going to teach you how to ride a bull, right? So if you want to learn how to be a sheep hunter, come to our convention because first of all, you're going to find mentors and truly it is the wild sheep family. You're going to find somebody there that you're going to connect with and you're going to make friends with and you're going to learn. And maybe they're not going to give you their, their sheep spot. There's no guarantee of that, but they're certainly going to you, send you in a direction um, and tell you to look at things. They're going to talk about gear, talk about conditioning. And on top of it, at our show, we offer all those seminars. We offer a seminar on sheep aging, which is absolutely critical. Um, as far as I'm concerned, if anyone ever goes sheep hunting, at the very least, they should do um, a self-guided course on how to age a sheep and then talk to somebody that knows what the heck they're doing, um, because the last thing we want to do is harvest a, a, an animal that's not legal. Um, so there's there's the sheep aging um, there's seminars on gear, there's seminars on nutrition and training, um, and then, you know, a whole bunch of other courses, too, and some really fun ones and interesting ones um, and, and stuff that maybe isn't necessarily sheep specific. So, you know, that honestly, uh, all joking aside, you know, coming to that show and, and finding a mentor or just people to talk to um, is, is a great start. Um, and then, you know, if, if that doesn't work for you, you say, no, no, I can do it on my own. You know, at least make use of the resources and start trying to educate yourself. And, and um, you know, regulations are not as simple as, you know, and then that goes, that's the case for everything, but understanding regulations. And again, back to that sheep aging thing, that's a huge one, right? So, yeah, that's kind of my, my two cents. That's where I would get people to start. That's how I did it. So um, I had a, a sheep hunting, uh, that, uh, a friend of mine that wanted to take me sheep hunting. So that was my mentor. So I did have a mentor. And Interesting. He bought me a membership to the Wild Sheep Society BC. He goes, "Okay, um, I'm buying you a membership." I'm like, "Well, what's that all about?" He goes, "I'm buying you a membership," and I'm like, "Okay." And that was kind of... and then my first show, I'm like, "Okay, I get why you did that," and it was definitely worth the money spent on his part. <laughs>
0: yeah, it's the gift that keeps on giving. <laughs> yeah. So, so, <laughs> yeah. so,
1: so let's get back to this uh, this field judging a ram thing. You've heard me say it over and over and over again in all our conversations over the last few years. I could, I could. Uh, be in the greatest shape of the world, have every single piece of kit that I wanted, and how many times if I said to you, "I will not shoot a ram unless I've got somebody experienced with me," right? <laughs> You've heard me say it over and over and over again. So, assuming I I decided to, to to take the plunge and go out solo, and I I I didn't have the the luxury of having somebody that that's got a second set of eyes to confirm. Uh, what would I do? From somebody uh who who wants to use the internet as a resource to to try and get better at field judging around like the difference between uh full curl three quarter curl the false annuli uh does it break the the edge of the, or the 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 top of the nose like what resources can you poke uh prod me towards as a rookie sheep hunter to to use
3: yeah, great question Steve and um you know that's where having that mentor is absolutely. Crucial. And, and you just said to yourself, I'm not going to go out and shoot anything unless there's somebody there that knows what they're doing, that says you're good to go. And you know what, Steve? I've been hunting um, sheep now for, well, this will be my, I guess, 10th year coming up. And um, I, I'm i the same as you, man. Um, whenever whenever I'm on a sheep, I, I've had the luxury of being on five different sheep kills now. Um, not all myself. Some were my partner. And every single one of those, it was always made. Um, it was a discussion between the two of us. And we both agreed. Um, now there are different regulations across the province, right? Like you said, three quarters, um, full curl. And so the big thing there is, is understanding woodstone you're hunting in your time frame and then understanding the regs and understanding what is legal. So we talk about full curl or a mature ram. So the regs are very specific on that, but a mature ram is one that is, uh, legal, legal to shoot is one past the nose, full curl and, or it has eight years of, uh, it's eight years old, and that's a very difficult thing to do. Now, the problem is there's a number of areas that are known for rams that never break the nose. There may be ten or eleven or twelve years old that never break the nose, right? So, um, understanding the regs and having an understanding of that is is absolutely crucial. Um, there are resources. Um, we have some resources on our website, WildSheepSociety.com. You can go there. Um, that's a good resource. And what we try and do is with our membership, we share that information. We'll be sharing it next month in July so that for August 1st, they'll have, have a, had a refresher on it. But personally, myself, when I'm out hunting, um, as an example, I haven't, I think the last um, ram uh, kill I was on was five years ago in 2015. I believe that's the one where my hunting partner shot his ram. So and I've hunted sheep every year since then. And this past year we hunted for two weeks and on uh, I don't know about day nine or ten. We found a ram that we thought was mature. We spent the entire day. We climbed up the hill, and uh, we aged him at what we thought was eight years old. And he wasn't. We couldn't verify that he was past the nose, which is again has to be eight years old or past the nose, either one to make him legal. And um, I personally have a, a rule because I'm not an overly experienced sheep hunter and. You know, if you've been doing it for thirty years you probably could c- consider yourself experienced, but you know, I think that the true um experienced guys are the guides, the guys that do it ten times a year or fifteen times a year, those are the guys that really understand it better. Um I'm just not confident shooting a, a ram that's eight years old. Um I would never would do it because you talked about false annuli and there are false annuli that can grow in these rams. And if you make a mistake, you're you're taking a resource that's not legal and then you have all that. So I'm super conservative. So is my partner. And, and we let that ram walk last year. Um, it was ni- 99.9%. It was legal, but that point one was there and you just can't pull the trigger. And, and I know most of your listeners are exactly like that anyway on any species, but sheep tend to be one of the more challenging ones. Um, and, uh, I, I know from experience. So yeah, I would say, um, uh, internet's a great resource. And then just if you can get your hands on some wild sheep and again, some self promotion here if you come to cover the show. We have a ton of wild sheep in there and you stand around and guys are we have aging contests. We actually have a contest. We have an aging course and then there's obviously dozens of rams on the wall. And lots of times we'll go around and we'll age them together. Like I'll just grab a buddy and say, Let's go look at the rams because they're amazing, obviously. And you go around and you age them together just out of fun, right? Um, but aging a ram when you're looking at it at two feet on the wall is a little bit different than what you're seeing on the mountainside too, right? So something to consider.
0: So when you look at um so, I mean, there's lots of, there's, there's different gear and there's all of those things that get in there. But, um, when, when I, when I hear, and I'm regaled with some of the, the stories of friends of mine that, that do these sheep hunts and, uh, you know, one of our, our good friends, you know, Mark Newdorf, uh, he's the guide and, and, and stuff for sheep and to hear him tell, you know, he's what he's trying to sell me on the idea of sheep hunting. You know, it's like you bushwhack for like hours and you're exhausted and dehydrated and it's painful and you'll hate your life. And you get up above the Alpine and then it's magical uh, until something happens. And then it's painful uh, on the way out. And when and you get back to the car, like you hate your life again. And then on the drive home is when you finally recover and you love it. And then another friend of ours, Shane Kilman, had told me he was, they were trying to get water. And this is what I have stuck in my head as a, as a guy that's aspiring to be a sheep hunter. He's like, at one point we came down to get water. He said, Donnie, I was so exhausted, I just sat down and said, I'm done. I looked at my, hunter, my hunting partner, and he said, I said, I'm done. I'm not going anymore. I'm not doing this anymore. And he said, "It's just the the physical and mental uh, exhaustion. He said, "It's it, it." Shane described it. He said, it's just, it's mentally taxing, uh, trying to find, because you." he said, you can go up there for 10 days or 12 days and not see a thing, like just because you picked an area you know, that that you thought that you, you did the reconnaissance you, and you heard the rumor and, you know, see people said, oh yeah, there's always been big rams taken there. And he said, you could spend hours and, you know, you could jet boat in or fly in or however you get there and then spend 12 or 14 or 15 days and not see a thing. So there's no such thing as a slam dunk. So understanding that and understanding that, you know, it's intriguing to me that there's people that push it's like they they want to push water uphill. <laughs> they want to do it year <laughs> after year after year. Um, like you said, I mean, you, you've done it multiple years. You haven't, because you don't harvest multiple times. But the mental part of that is there's got to be there's a there's a you have to recruit a lot of willpower to to put yourself through that experience because it's physically and mentally taxing. Um, is is that where the payoff is?
3: Yeah, I I think so, Don. I think that, you know, it's just like anything else in life, like where, where do you find the most reward in anything that you do? Is it when you, when you find something super easy, like, um, you know, for you, when your dealership, when you walk in and a guy's standing there and he walks in and says, I'm going to buy that truck. There you go. There's your money. Um, You know, you're like, okay, great. We made a sale and that's going to make the world go round. Or is it the guy that you worked at for three weeks that you phoned him and you worked with him, you gained a relationship with him, you took him for coffee and then he buys the truck. Um, And maybe you got a customer for life there and you built a relationship with this guy. You know, which one's more rewarding, right? Like at the end of the day, they both still pay the bills, but at the end of the day, the guy that you spent three weeks trying to sell that vehicle to that's the one where you probably go, shoot, that was a lot of work. And boy, it feels good, man. Like, you know, I did my job there. Right. And I think, you know, if we draw a parallel to, to sheep hunting, I think it's like that, right? When you go out there and, you know, there's times where you think, Jesus, man, I can't do this. Um, and it's one of those things where you've worked all year towards it. You, you, you know, you're training for it, you've got your mind on it and then you go out and, and maybe now I was pretty darn lucky. I got a sheep in my first year, but they say that the first year you sheep hunt, that's the year that your sheep you're going to harvest is born. Meaning that, you know, most guys will hunt for eight years and never kill a sheep, right? So, or until they kill their first sheep. So, you know, you can imagine if you go year after year after year, which guys do. I've got friends of mine that have been hunting for seven, eight years and never killed a sheep, and then you're successful. The reward for that is unimaginable because it's been this amazing um, journey that you've been on, um, and then you've achieved it, right? So, that in itself, once you've achieved it, is is just phenomenal, and and certainly every you know, time I've harvested a sheep, the two times I've done it and the three other times my partner has, I just, you know, the the memories of that are just, you know, so vivid. But it's, it's also, you know, what uh, life isn't about the destination. It's about the journey, right? And that journey in the backcountry. And when you get up that first morning or you, you're out there the first day and you see wild sheep on the mountain or you see that grizz, um, that's the thing. When I go sheep hunting, it's, it's a majesty. It's, it's a, vision I see nowhere else. I can't get that when I'm, you know, when I'm going black bear hunting on the island or if I go for elk in, you know, in the Kootenays or something like that. I don't get the experience I get when I in in the backcountry in northern BC and there's a mama and a, and a sow with two cubs running across the landscape and I'm watching this and I'm sitting there and I'm watching it for hours or, you know, you see lambs and ewes or you see these rams um and just, you know, to me when I'm out there sheep hunting um the success is never about pulling the trigger it's you know th- that that's obviously a feeling of elation when you've achieved something but I, I think the elation's probably even bigger when you get <laughs> the bloody <laughs> thing back to the truck right um but uh yeah that's you know it's a, yeah. yeah it's a it's about the experience it truly is right so it's it's about pushing yourself but then it's also out there and experience and and um you know, there are a lot of challenging moments as a sheep hunter, but there's also a lot of amazing, rewarding moments. Like, that's the thing, when you're in the, in the high country and you're sheep hunting, you can sit on, the, um, you know, find some cover and sit there all day and just glass for sheep. If you're in sheep country, you don't have to go anywhere. You could spend three days not going anywhere and see sheep and harvest it just as much as the next guy that's working his tail off. But, you know, you're going to have to work to get there. It's, it's
0: on, our, on our Facebook group that uh, we have, that's uh, run by Robbie Inglot, uh, who I'm sure you know quite well. Um, but two five zero Alpine is is all about that. My favorite part about the page. I have nothing to add to the conversation, so I never weigh in as a as a non sheep hunting dude. But, I, I mean, I just sit and look at the, the photography that is is that oh, yeah. that is on that page is just incredible. Like, just the the scenery, the landscape. And, I mean, it's not even about the sheep. It's the places that they go, the drainages, the mountains that they're in, the, the, the alpine lakes. It's just remarkable photography. I mean, the, that, that's really the appeal. So, Kyle, you got me sold. I'm going to find a way to suffer through this thing one time in the next couple <laughs> of years. And get this thing done. I was looking at um, just some statistics. I was actually, to be honest, I was surprised. Uh, Steve and I have been perusing some data that we, we got from the ministry just about just general harvest uh, across species in British Columbia. Um, but I was surprised to see like 18, in 2018-2019 season, I was just looking at the number of, of tags for sheep. So 287 non-resident, and I would think that's because it's, I mean, it's, a, it's not a cheap hunt to come here from someplace else and, 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 uh, and hunt them. 1,609 LEH applications and 2,803 resident tags issued. That's a lot more people. I mean, you guys have 1,000 members and you got 2,803 folks. So um, you got 1,803 people that need to pony up and join the club, I think is what needs to happen because uh, <laughs> you're missing some membership. But the other part of it is you've got a significant portion of that, of mm-hmm. that membership that's in there, because I think there'll be a little bit of overlap on some of the LEH and the resident stuff. So, um, that, but those, mm-hmm. those are, that's more than I would have expected. I honestly thought that that number was going to be somewhere close to your thousand, maybe, maybe 1200, I wasn't expecting to see it that high, so there's a lot of people uh, that that are looking for sheep hunting opportunities, or at least uh, purchasing tags for it. So that's, I think that's, you know, that, that's that was surprising to me. So
1: I, I do know a guy that will draw an X on a map. I've heard. So
0: oh, there we go. Well, that's perfect. <laughs> so just a couple more. Well, th- if, if, go ahead, Kyle.
3: Yeah, and and I do think that uh, you know when when I joined the society, I, I was their membership chair my first year. And I looked at that, you know, at the time it was roughly 2,500 was the number and you're right this year, 28 for sheep tags sold. Um, and I, I always thought, you know, and, and I, I was guilty of this. I, I wasn't a member initially, but, you know, we we have to do a better job of reaching out to those other 1,500 people or 1,800 people and letting them know what we're doing. You know, we're looking after the resource that you want to hunt. Um, and I, I think that's on us as an organization. We're going to do a better job of Getting our word out and, and educating people on on the work we're doing um, to to get their support because that you know my vision is exactly that there's 2,800 sheep tags there should be 2,800 members of the Wild Sheep Society BC and really there's a bunch of non hunters or people that have never bought a sheep tag like the two of you um, that <laughs> are you know as an example right so yeah, no true you story you know we have to do a better job as an organization getting the word out for sure that's awesome. <laughs>
1: So we talked about me being down in Reno and uh, one of the first questions that was asked of me when, when I registered is did you buy your less than one club ticket? And I said, what, what what the hell is that? And I I think it was you that said, well, for 25 bucks, you you get a beer and that's all I heard. And (laughs) so, so I, so I, so I booked the ticket and then read a little bit more. And it said that I got admission to this, this uh, gala event. And as as soon as the show was done, but, uh, Three thirty, I believe the doors open at quarter after four, four thirty. I was told to walk over there and and do it quickly by by Joe Joe Humphreys, who's uh, one of our directors. I think he's the treasurer, isn't he? Correct. Yeah. yeah. Uh, he said, "Well, let's go. Get over there. Get over there." And by the time we got there, and not a five minute walk across the parade ground, so to speak, there was probably three hundred people ahead of us, and within ten minutes, there was three hundred people behind us. And then he explained to me, "Well, you get beer here, and you get a cool cup. It says less than one club." And you get chances to win your first sheep hunt. And I was like, oh, hell yeah. So we went in, grabbed a big bowl of pretzels, found some standing room only. And and ba- basically, I, I learned real quick that it was uh, a, a great opportunity for somebody like me or Don could could uh, get in there. He's got the less than one club with, with 25 bucks to get a beard. Have I mentioned that? Um, so <laughs> so these these brand new sheep hunters, well, they hadn't killed a sheep yet. Got got a chance to win. I, I think there was a doll sheep, and there was uh, there was a couple international, uh, less than one club people. So they gave it what four or five hunts there, and it was fully fully expense paid. And I I thought that club was kind of neat. I know I'm a member of it, but I, I I have an idea on how to get out of it. Uh, but that's going to take somebody <laughs> yeah. drawing an X on a map. Again, have I mentioned that? So, <laughs>
0: yeah, and I've always, I've, I've heard of the Less Than One Club and the Take One Put Put One Back initiatives yeah, yeah. out of the Wild Sheep Foundation. So is that something, is that is that Wild Sheep Foundation, Kyle, or is that also, is the Less Than One Club also in the Wild Sheep Society of BC?
3: Yeah, it's exclusively Wild Sheep Foundation, and that is their trademark hunt, and it's a great, great concept. It, uh, the uh, president and CEO of Wild Sheep Foundation, Gray Thornton, he goes, it's the only club you ever want to get kicked out of. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> basically, um, you know, if you the concept is is if you've never shot a sheep, you can join the club. The less than one club meaning you've less than one sheep killed. So killed no sheep. Um, and then uh, what happens is twenty five bucks for free entry into the drawing. You got to be in person to win. Um, and they give away a couple hundred thousand dollars worth of sheep hunts in about thirty minutes. Um, you go in there. You got unlimited beer with your mug. And, uh, and then they start drawing these hunts. There's a stone sheep, there's a doll sheep. They draw all these hunts. And there's, there's also a less than one eye club, which is a different club. So what that, that basically spawned from the less than one was incredibly successful. A ton of people were like, Holy crap, I can win a $60,000 hunt, um, by through a $25 tag or ticket. And it's pretty, your odds are pretty good. It's not, you know, there's only so many people and you have to be in that room. So, um, the odds are really good, so that was incredibly successful, but then a guy like me that's, that's already shot a sheep, um, I don't get an opportunity for that, so they created the less than one eye club, so that's less than one international. There's specific rules on it, but basically if you've never shot a wild sheep, um, you can join either one of those clubs and get a chance to have a fully expense-paid guided hunt for you know whatever they're offering that year each year. It's a little bit different depending, but um, yeah, I think last year they gave away it was either four or six hunts, uh, yeah. sheep hunts, which, yeah, um, big numbers for sure, and uh, yeah, very cool concept. And it's and you were there, Steve. The uh, the the room's buzzing. You got free beer. You got free sheep hunts. You got all these people. <laughs> How could it's you not like this event? Gun. Yeah, yeah, that's oh, awesome. It, it was it was exactly. great, it, and,
1: and yeah, it, yeah. You, you do have to be there because I believe they drew two tags for uh, for people that weren't in the room, and you you just heard everybody go. Yeah. <laughs> but they knew that their chances just got one better and they the, the thing is yeah. they, were, they were broadcasting live on facebook so imagine being that one that said mm, no i'm yeah. not gonna go yeah and no realize that you just tossed a sixty thousand dollar hunt away <laughs>
0: so uh yeah. speaking on initiatives and, and we're just just about uh just got a couple more things for you and we'll let you get back to your life kyle but uh one campfire initiative uh i want i, I kind of want to know a little bit about its genesis and its intent i, I think it's been a it's one of the best things that I've seen been pushed into the hunting space um, in, in decades, to be honest. Uh, I think it's a great engagement piece. Can you talk a little bit about where that came from?
3: Yeah, absolutely. For sure, Don. Uh, yeah. One campfire is uh, a, a wild sheep society, BC initiative. And now we have uh, the wild sheep foundation signed on as a partner with us on this initiative as well. And basically wh- the genesis of it was um, you know, we've been sort of struggling with social license around hunting and you know the big one obviously is grizzly bearer and you know lately wolves and the challenges around that and we felt as hunters you know we we have to do a bit better job of marketing ourselves if you will uh, marketing it to the you know the general public not not internally that's there's a little bit of education that needs to go on there internally and hats off to you to Don and spruce city and steve for the work you guys do on your end of things and trying to do the right thing there too, right? Um, you guys do a fantastic job there, but our target was the non hunting public. Um, you know, it was the people in the urban environment. We've seen this massive shift from rural communities to urban centers now and trying to reach people in downtown Vancouver, downtown Victoria in these urban populations and trying to basically have a, a sense of acceptance around hunting. And it's not the R3 thing that's going on in the states. Um, which is important too, you know, recruiting new people into the into hunting. Um, it wasn't a recruitment uh, scheme; it was more of an accepted thing. So, uh, uh, really, what precipitated was the closure of the grizzly bear hunt. So, when the NDP um, were elected, um, coming up three years ago now, um, and there basically was the cancellation of the grizzly bear hunt, which you know which was based on science-based uh, management. Um, and biologists were saying we have an issue here. We fully support that 100%. We are 100% in support of anything to do with, um, conserving the resource. But we all know that that was a, a social decision. It had to do with, um, you know, a popular consensus and that, um, you know, the NDP had, had basically, um, I guess they wouldn't, we wouldn't say that they, uh, campaigned on that promise, but they certainly were signaling that they were going to deal with the grizzly bear hunt. So, when they canceled that, we are like, you know, we cannot sit around and do anything more. We 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 knew we had the problem. It wasn't, you know, we said it was a wake-up call. It wasn't a wake-up call. We knew we had an issue there, but that was the last nail in the coffin, I think. So that was the genesis of it. Um, and, you know, fast forward three years, there's been a lot of work that has gone into the campaign, and um, it's been baby steps. We've, we've still got a ton of work to do, uh, but we do feel that we're making inroads. Um, Steve, you're a big part of it, and my hat's off to you, your work. Um, Steve is working on one campfire on a daily basis and does a fantastic job as does the entire committee pass off the entire committee, but uh, Steve, thanks for, for your part on it as well. So that's kind of the background on it, Don, um, and, um, and where we're sitting at today with it.
0: So do you think, do, do you, think that you've, um, I mean, it's a, there's a big, there's a, there's a big, there's a big divide sometimes between hunting and non-hunting, but I mean, I, sometimes we, there's a there's a great divide between us and and anti hunters, but there's not that big of a. I mean, there is a, there's a there's a separation between between us and the non hunting community. Do you feel that that's got is it is it a question of of uh, built? You, have you built a bridge? Like, is there is there connective tissue? Do you think that's been established? Do we at least have the roots of a bridge to the to a non hunting public? And how do you measure the? How do you how do you know that that you're making the connection? Like, I mean, are, are you are you sure are are, are are we aware of that connection? Um, is there, is there a dialogue that's two way that that that's being facilitated through the one campfire movement?
3: Yeah, for sure. Don, yeah, we, we've, we've made, we made inroads for sure. And, uh, you know, we're, we're slowly building the brand. Obviously this is something that we knew was the long game. You know, we, we talked about it for years about doing something and we talked about, um, if we're going to do this, it's the long game. Nothing's going to happen overnight. Um, one piece of the one campfire puzzle is community engagement, reaching out to these urban communities, getting in downtown Vancouver, downtown Victoria. Um, and like you said, have something that's interactive, have some discussion with the non-hunter. Um, and because of the COVID-19 crisis and everything that's going around with that, nothing has happened with regards to that. Um, we've, we've done some community engagement, um, this spring, early before the COVID-19 crisis, we did a trade show in downtown Vancouver. Um, some positive feedback there. And I think that that's a a really important part of what we're doing. And we're going to have to continue to do that is reach out beyond our borders into the non-hunting community and have dialogue and interactive and listen to what people are saying. Um, but we basically lost the last six months regarding COVID-19. So that's one of the, um, challenges that we're having right now. And we're kind of back to square one on that. But uh, yeah, I would say small steps. I, I you know, I, I think we're heading the right direction. We've got great support from the hunting community and uh, we have a lot of really good things in the pipe coming down. Uh, but we do need to do more work. And I think community engagement is a part of that, uh, but um, more work to be done for sure.
0: So the, the last question I have for you is, is out of everything that's in front of uh, the world of wild sheep as a society or and sheep hunting in, in, in British Columbia specifically, what do you think the single biggest challenge is in
3: front of you right now? Oh, he saved it the, the best for last. That's a tough one, Don. Um, the biggest challenge in front of us, um, you know, I think, I, I think that, uh, you know, and I'm going to wax poetically here, but I think it, it's um, a societal issue, to be honest with you. And I think that there's a little bit of a divide and a disconnect. Um, you know, we are hunter conservationists. We care about wild sheep. We put a lot of time, money and effort into them. Um, and I think there's a lot of other people that care about um, conservation and about wildlife and wild animals and wild sheep specifically. And I think we need to figure out a way to bridge that gap and find some common ground to put the resource first. And, um, you know, maybe we need to make some concessions and change the way th- we do things a little bit. We're not ever going to change who we are, but, um, you know, we got to figure out a way to get on the same page. And, um, you know, I would love to see um, hundreds of people that don't even care about sheep hunting or maybe uh, don't even own a, a rifle or a hunting license that want to be part of our organization. So, you know, I think that bridging that gap is a big part of what needs to be done. And, uh, and you know, a little bit of one campfire speaks to that. That's part of what we're doing there. Uh, but I think, you know, um, holistically from the wild sheep resources, getting everyone to care about conservation. And obviously, wild sheep is something near and dear to me, and that's our mandate, but all wildlife. Um, so I think, you know, as an organization, that's something we're thinking about. Um, we'd like to see more support from outside our hunting community for wild sheep conservation. And I think if we can start bridging those gaps, the true winner is going to be wild sheep uh, in the end.
0: Yeah. Good answer, my friend. Good answer. All right. Well, if you, anyone wants to uh, be a member of the Wild Sheep Society, donate to the Wild Sheep Society research the wild sheep society ask questions or see if they can get a deal on airfare from kyle how <laughs> <laughs> you, you will
1: have to go as uh, parcels
0: though yeah yeah so. yeah yeah. you have to go have to go as parcels yeah, so how do, I, kyle what's the best way to connect the dots with wild sheep society where can they find you
3: folks yeah best thing to do is check us out online wildsheepsociety.com uh, that's a good starting point uh, we tend to be quite active on social um these are um uh, communications, he manages all that stuff on Facebook for us. Does a great job on that. Um, so check out us out on Facebook or, uh, Insta. Um, links are through our well, com website there as well. Um, if you want to donate, that's a good place to, to go and, and buy a membership. Check us out. See what we stand for. Um, memberships are 50 bucks a, a month, a year. Sorry, 50 bucks a year is the cheapest ones on a three year. And, uh, that'll get you started. And, uh, um, if you, if you have contact info, you can put my email in the show notes. I'd be happy to talk to anybody about wild sheep conservation or hunting or any of that stuff if anyone wants to reach out to me.
0: That was super awesome. Thank you so much for giving us some time in the evening. Uh, I, we know you're a busy person. Uh, we appreciate that you took some time to 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 spend some time with us. Uh, this is a, this is our first interview style, uh, podcast that we've done uh we're super super excited that you were our first guest it made it easy because you're 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 pretty you're pretty good you got you you got your stick down pat kyle yeah <laughs> you know your stuff <laughs> uh, and uh, there's some great information for all of us so that it, it's been really really good so thanks for spending some time with us man thanks for everything you've been doing for Wild cheap uh thanks for all the support that you give uh conservation and hunting and and angling in general because i i see your thumbs up across all of our platforms Uh, you're supporting it all and uh, it's people like you that make this whole conservation outdoor world go around so thanks for everything you're doing man Uh, I think that's it for for me Stevie now appreciate everybody's time here that's listening to this appreciate
1: your time Kyle for uh, everything you do as Don said I can't say it much better than him and hey Matt Thanks for everything you're doing for us as well. You're making us sound great. (laughs)
0: Hey, thank you, guys. (laughs) (laughs) Happy
1: to be a part of this. Virtual hug. (laughs) Big (laughs)
0: virtual hug in one campfire. Thanks again, Kyle, man. Have a great (laughs) night, buddy.
3: Thanks, Jen. Thanks for everything. Take care. Take take care.
0: Bye-bye.